0: Almighty Father, as we come now to um, consider um, this uh, first reading, this hymn of praise to you that Israel sang uh, thousands of years ago, we ask that you will uh, make it clear um, the truths, the realities uh, that caused them so much joy And will you grant it to cause joy in us, and also to awaken us that we may be um, uh, awake to reality and not asleep? In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And um, it's helpful if you turn over to page 9 and 10. Um, We're continuing our... Uh, series in Exodus uh, today, and we're obviously starting, as you've already seen, we're starting Advent um, at the same time. Um, and if you look at that reading from Exodus, it, you'll notice that it's a poem, it's uh, more particularly, it's a hymn. In fact, it is one of, and arguably the very first, worship song in the whole of the Bible. That might be overstating it, but not, but not hardly. Um, in, in, so, if you're here and uh, you don't have a Christian background and you're kind of, you don't understand why we sing, and we say all kinds of weird things when we sing, which is true, we sing, say all kinds of weird things when we sing, um, this is, um, you're in luck, because this uh, reading will help us a little bit understand where our tradition of singing and praising God comes from. And if you're hearing, those of us who are Christians, um, this allows us, this reading is going to allow us to reorient ourselves to the animating center of Christian joy. This is going to remind us why it is that we sing. It's easy just to kind of fall into patterns and do things because we always do it. But this gives us an opportunity to uh, uh, reinvestigate um, why we praise God. uh, But remember the context here. So the situation is that Israel uh, has been enslaved in Egypt and they're escaping. Uh, They finally gained an opportunity for them to escape uh, slavery in Egypt. And so in the last few weeks, the story that we've been following is them running, so to speak, for the border. However... We saw this last week, disaster strikes, when Egypt, the great superpower of the day, chases down Israel and catches them right next to the Red Sea, so that Israel is trapped. They can't go into the sea because they don't have any boats, and behind them is the greatest uh, military power of their day, and they're they're, going to be destroyed. And then, do you remember this from last week? Then God intervenes. God steps in and he, you know, miraculously and dramatically divides the Red Sea. Israel escapes. Egypt is washed away in the water and then this reading happens. The response of Israel is to sing out in joy with this big long poem that we just read. And here's what I want to show you today. This hymn, this song of praise right after they're rescued is not just ...about Israel's momentary experience by the Red Sea. This hymn is bigger than just a one-off miracle. This hymn is the first draft of the song that God's people... ...the Bible says that God's people will sing a draft of this same hymn... ...right the way through all of eternity. Through our lives now and through all of eternity in the future. Which is a big thing to say. Let me say it differently... Let me say it in terms of Advent. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, Advent is the four weeks that lead up to Christmas. But it's much bigger than just getting ready for Christmas. Advent is a season of the church year where Christians practice looking into the future. It's a season where we look into the future by looking back to the past. What does that mean? It means we look forward to Jesus' final victory over evil. That stands as a warning for us. That's what the second reading was about. But it also stands as a reason for great joy. The problem is, it's very difficult, as we all know, to look into the future. And it's difficult for us to deeply grasp what Jesus' final victory over evil is going to look like. And therefore, one of the best ways to look forward into the future is to look backward And how God defeated evil in the past. And that's why, Emmanuel, this hymn from thousands of years ago is a perfect hymn for us to study on this first Sunday of Advent. Because in this hymn, Israel watches as God defeats Egypt and the evil that they represented. And as they watch God defeat evil, they're filled with a joy and a security that they could not have imagined before this moment. And therefore, as we read this song, we get a preview. For Christians, we get a preview of the joy that will continue all through eternity for everyone who belongs to Jesus. So that's what we're going to practice doing. Here's the plan. We're going to look at this song, and I want to show you three reversals. God causes three things to be completely overturned and reversed. And as we look at those three reversals that God worked for, to rescue Israel, it'll give us a lens for looking at Jesus' great victory on our behalf. First of all, the three uh, reversals. Here they are. We're going to look at this, and I want to show you how God, in this hymn, reverses, first of all, the sovereignty of evil. Secondly, he reverses the slavery of Israel. And thirdly, he reverses their exile. Let me show you what I mean. First of all, God reverses evil's sovereignty. Start at the end of the reading. Do you see Miriam's song? Miriam, uh, uh, sister of Aaron, and uh, Moses also? She gets up and she sings, and she says, verse 21, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, and the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, let me fill in some background here. Um, Take this woman, Miriam. And imagine uh, imagine Miriam as maybe a nine-year-old little girl several years before this. She lives in Egypt, but she's an Israelite, and therefore she is a slave. And her mother has just given birth to a little boy. And the law at this point in Egypt is that all the little Israelite boys are supposed to be killed. They're supposed to be thrown into the Nile. Do you remember this? We read this told this story several weeks ago. Uh, Pharaoh wants uh, Israel to die, and therefore he's trying to commit genocide by killing all the little boys. Now, nine-year-old Miriam at that moment is a little girl with no power. Uh, her world, at least from what she can see of her world, her world is dominated by evil, or put differently, it is dominated by a kind of meaningless futility. Because in her world, at that moment, Pharaoh's word is sovereign, Pharaoh is all-powerful. However, despite that, in her little family, there's a resistance that's going on. Uh, Her mother uh, hides her little brother, for several months, and when she can't hide him anymore, her mother uh, builds a little boat, and we think it might have been Miriam, took that little boat and that little baby and floated that little baby down the Nile, trying to protect that little baby, and eventually, remarkably, unexpectedly, Pharaoh's daughter picks up the baby and raises that baby as her own, and that's Moses. Now, Miriam and her mother and her family were full of remarkable courage. And we should admire her for that, celebrate her. But on the other hand, just consider and internalize just how futile all of that must have seemed in the moment. You know, she saved her little brother, her and her mother and her family, which is fantastic. But Pharaoh, despite that little moment of something good that happened. Nevertheless, Pharaoh is still sovereign. Evil is still sovereign, it appears. And she still, little Miriam, still lives in a regime that screams out verse 9. Look at verse 9. The enemy said, I will pursue and I will overtake. This is summing up the character of the Egyptian regime. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them and I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. Miriam... ...lived every single moment of her life under that continuous threat. She lived every single moment of her life under the apparent sovereignty of evil. And it was brilliant that she and her mother and her family could save her little brother... ...but but there's reason to think, at least from her perspective, that that might just be an anomaly... Just, that that might be a momentary uh, 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 sign that that some one individual was saved, but nevertheless, it looked like in that moment that she lived in a world where evil will eventually win. Now, here's part of why I'm emphasizing all of this. If you're going to understand Christianity... And if you're going to understand Christian joy in particular, and if you're going to taste something of what it is to sing out the joy of having been rescued by Jesus Christ, which is the animating center of Christian joy, if you're going to understand any of that, then you've got to look face, just go right nose to nose with the reality of evil in our world. Christianity is not for optimists. Christianity is only for realists. You've got to look right in the nose at the sense of futility. I mean, we live, don't we? We live in a beautiful world. And therefore, if you only, if you just kind of selectively look at our world, you can be an optimist, you can see the beautiful things and ignore the ugly things. But the reality is that we live in a world in which at least all beings capable of perceiving beauty will eventually die. And therefore, there's an argument to say that all beauty eventually dies. And given that we live in a world like that, there's there's plausible reason to look at our world and say, you know what, we live in a world where uh, beauty and goodness and truth is an anomaly, and in the end, it's futile because all beautiful things eventually die. Now, I know that's terribly pessimistic, isn't it? But, go back to the text. Because if we're going to take Miriam and her joy seriously, you've got to take seriously the fact that death and futility and evil sometimes appear to have the upper hand. But now, ask this question, or I ask this question, what changed for Miriam? The answer is that she witnessed God reverse evil's sovereignty right before her eyes. Picture the scene at the Red Sea again. Israel is escaping, sort of, except then they get pinned down by the Red Sea. Egypt's army is about ready to destroy them. It's the worst case possible scenario. In the middle of that crisis, most of Israel started saying, I wish we would have never left slavery because this is worse. We're going to die for forever. Israel may have won for a day on Passover night, but now Egypt is about ready to end the whole story. And that's when Advent happened. Why do we say that? Advent means arrival. And right at the critical moment, God arrived and intervened. Or I could say it this way God Advented right into the scenario unexpectedly, God parts the Red Sea, Israel escapes, and then comes the Great Reversal. Because the Great Reversal happens when Israel, having escaped, looks back at at Egypt, walking through the water, which still looks like they're going to get them, and then, right at that moment, the Lord closes the Red Sea and defeats Egypt for forever. Which, to a lot of us, is shocking because it's violent. Is it not? But again... that moment from Miriam's perspective. Because the moment she sees the Lord defeat Pharaoh and his army, she is witnessing the Lord reversing the sovereignty of evil. And in that moment, she all of a sudden realizes she is living in a different world than the one that she thought she was. Because if she belongs to a Lord who can defeat evil's sovereignty there... And it fills her with a new kind of security and a new kind of joy that she could have never anticipated. And not only that, it sort of backfills the previous, her previous life with a new kind of meaning. Why do I say that? Because as she watches the Lord defeat decisively evil right in front of her, it means that she can look back from that moment... Over the course of her previous life, she can look back into that moment, maybe where she helped her mother rescue her brother, and she can see that that moment was not an anomaly after all. That moment of courage and that moment of risking everything to do the right thing, that was a moment where she was anticipating the Lord's final rescue. That good deed that she had done so many years before that, it was not futile. It was shot through with an eternal kind of meaning. When she sees the Lord take sovereignty over evil, she looks back and it transforms her previous the previous meaning of her life. But then it also means that she can look forward. She can look forward to the future because she knows that if there is a God who can part the Red Sea and defeat Pharaoh, then there is also a God that can ensure that in the end he will defeat all other evil as well. Can you see how it transforms her previous life and it transforms her future? Watching the Lord's victory, her heart is filled with a kind of a joy that is actually exactly the kind of joy that's appropriate to Advent. And therefore, she commands us to sing. Did you know that you're under the command of Miriam to sing? Look at verse 21. She says, sing, Emmanuel. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, and the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The first reversal is the reversal of evil's sovereignty. But then there's two more. Look at the longer version of the song. You can see that the Lord also reverses slavery and the Lord reverses exile. You can see them both in verse 13. Look at verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Now, first, the Lord reverses slavery. Look at verse uh, 13. Do you see the word redeemed? It's come up a bunch of times in Exodus so far. To redeem something is to buy back something that was originally yours. So the Lord belonged to, or uh, Israel belonged to the Lord by rights. And in Exodus chapter 4, the Lord says just that same thing. In Exodus chapter 4, the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. However, Pharaoh, by enslaving uh, Israel, had sort of kidnapped the Lord's firstborn son. And therefore, at the Red Sea, the Lord was taking back what was his. He was redeeming what was rightfully his. Or put differently, the Lord was reversing Israel's slavery and taking full custody of his son Israel. And this hymn is the joy of Israel As the Lord's son singing as a child who's finally at home with his father. Um, Azzy Goth, member here um, at Emmanuel, uh, works with an organization called uh, Invisible Children. And Invisible Children uh, works in places like the Congo, where uh, very often young children are abducted and forced into slavery or forced into. uh, being a child soldier. And Invisible Children works uh, with, in these countries to find these children, uh, liberate these children, and reunite them with their families. And last week, as he showed me pictures of a young man who had been abducted for 10 years. He was a 7-year-old when he was stolen, and he was 17 when he was returned. And she showed me pictures of the moment that this 17-year-old boy saw his dad for the first time again. And the pictures of this moment, I mean, the tears that represent years of yearning and the joy and the embrace that just can't quite contain the release of the emotion in that moment. And that's the joy of this hymn. Because Israel is no longer slaves to Pharaoh. Israel is the son of the Lord, totally set free. And therefore, the Lord's victory is not just overturning evil sovereignty. It's something personal and particular to Israel to liberate them out of slavery and to reunite them with a father. And then the last reversal is that the Lord reverses israel's exile look back at verse 13 you see where it says you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode Uh, abodes a weird word but it means home right and and specifically in this context it means the place where the lord's presence lives now you've got to keep in mind that israel was always up until this point a migrant people and they had never really had a home to call their own But now the Lord wants that to change. And it's not just that the Lord's going to give them a homeland. Uh, uh, It's not just that the Lord's going to give them political liberation. It includes that, but it goes beyond that. The Lord wants his son Israel to live with him in a relationship of intimacy. The Lord wants full custody of his son. And that means that Israel's got to live as close to the Lord's presence as he possibly can. Miriam... And all of her people, like all migrants, yearned for a home. But there was no reason up until this point to think that they would ever get one. But then at the Red Sea, they realized that the Lord who rescued them was also the one who would take them to live with him in his presence for forever. That's going to start with something called the tabernacle and the temple, which we'll talk about later on in the year. But for right now, just pause and look at the pattern Of the Lord's victory. The Lord defeats evil. The Lord adopts his people to be his children. And then the Lord leads them. To live at home with him in his presence for forever. Do you see that pattern? It's the pattern of the great victory. That filled Miriam and Moses. And all the people of Israel. With a deep and a thick. Robust kind of joy. But then the question is, and I can imagine somebody saying, well, lovely, lovely, history lesson there, Jim. Um, What in the world does Adventist have to do with us? To which I respond, absolutely everything. In fact, when you're asking that question, you're ready to understand Advent. Why? Well, we said at the beginning, this hymn in Exodus 15, it's the first draft of the song that will mark God's people throughout all eternity. That's the big audacious claim of the Bible. We look back to God's victory at the Red Sea precisely so that we can look forward to understand God's victory for all time. And actually, this hymn asks us to do it. Do you see verse 18, the last line of the big version of the song? It says, The Lord will reign forever... Now consider what that means. What it's saying there is that the victory of the Red Sea is not a one-off event. It's not an anomaly. The same Lord who defeated Egypt in that moment is the same Lord who will continue to defeat evil. To adopt people as his children. And to lead them to live with him in his presence for forever. What it's saying, verse 18, is that the Red Sea was like an an inauguration of the Lord's reign as king. But it's not the end. It's just the beginning of the reign. And and it's better to say it was just the warm-up. If you look at the end of the Bible, uh, Revelation chapter 15, you can look it up later. um, What we find out is that um, this song of Moses, it's specifically the song of Moses, will become part of the soundtrack of the eternity of everybody who belongs to Jesus Christ. And that's why in Advent, we anticipate and get ready for that joy of the Lord's victory by looking at Jesus Christ, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem and when he died in Calvary. Why do we say that? Because when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it appeared that he was weaker even than Miriam was. He was... Uh, the little boy who the king, Herod, wanted to kill. And in that moment, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there was no reason to think that he would have any real influence in the world. Influences for people like Herod, right? The king. But things are not always as they seem. And what we find out is that Jesus is God himself becoming vulnerable. Jesus is God himself entering into our weakness. And just like Miriam and all Israel, Jesus himself became a migrant. He was even a migrant in Egypt. And like Miriam and all Israel, Jesus himself was victimized by evil. He was treated as a slave. He was killed as a criminal. But on the cross, precisely when it looked like all ...good and beautiful and true things are futile... ...if the Son of God is being crucified on a cross... ...precisely at that moment... ...Jesus... ...was doing battle against evil. Jesus was doing battle against death. Jesus was doing battle against sin. And in his death and his resurrection... ...he throws down evil's sovereignty forever. And he did that so that he could liberate... ...all slaves to sin and evil... And he did that so he could bring all migrants, literal and spiritual migrants, he could bring us all home to God as our Father for forever. So that when you look at Jesus in the manger and on the cross, you see Jesus reversing evil's sovereignty and reversing our slavery to sin and reversing our exile and giving us a home. And that's why this this hymn in Exodus 15 is not just a one-off, it's just a first draft. So, let me ask you the question. Is this song your song? Has, another way to say it, has Jesus revolutionized your life? Let me say it more specifically. Look at verse 2 of the big version of the song. Has verse 2 become the driving joy of your life? Verse 2 says, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. Do you see how personal that is? It's not corporate. It's not we and us and all of us together have been redeemed. It's I have been redeemed. Jesus or the Lord is my salvation. It's personal. There's many reasons why that's important. But here's one. Go back to Miriam. What is it that makes Miriam different from Pharaoh? You answer a thousand things, Jim. What are you talking about? Which is true. But here's the main thing The main thing that makes Miriam different from Pharaoh is that Miriam entrusted herself to the Lord, and Pharaoh did not. Miriam entrusted herself to the Lord, and the Lord became her salvation Israel's salvation, but also Miriam's salvation and Moses' salvation. Pharaoh, on the other hand, consistently refused God's salvation and entrusted, him, entrusted only himself. And that led to his destruction. And so here's the thing about Advent. Advent asks us to look forward and look backwards. Advent wants us to look back to the Lord's victory and forward to how the Lord's victory will echo right the way through time and will uh, be the dominant theme of all of eternity but there's another aspect to advent and it's the ad- aspect of warning it's the emphasis in jesus's reading that second reading advent asks us to take very seriously the danger of rejecting the lord's victory and trusting ourselves. if miriam had trusted herself she would not have been rescued pharaoh trusted in himself and it led to his own destruction And the Bible asks us and calls us and summons us to remember that all of us will one day stand before the Lord Jesus. And he will be the victor and the champion, the victorious one over all evil. And it will matter a great deal in that moment, whether we have entrusted ourselves to him or whether we have trusted only ourselves. If we entrust ourselves to the Lord, then we will share Miriam's joy eternally. And if we, entrust our, if we trust only ourselves, then we will share Pharaoh's fate. And the wonderful, alluring, good news in all of this is that when we follow the path that Miriam calls us to, sing to the Lord, When the Lord becomes our salvation, then it means that we have not only future joy, but just like the joy that Miriam tasted backfilled her previous life. So the joy that we know in Jesus when we entrust ourselves to him, that future joy of his final victory backfills our life now and fills us right now with hope and with love and with courage. Hope because we know we've got a home that we're going to. Love, because we have been loved as the adopted child of the Father. And courage, because it means that we, because we're confident that the Lord will defeat all evil, we can resist evil now, courageously, knowing that we will participate in the Lord's final victory in the end. So, this Advent, look forward into the future by looking back at the Lord's victory Generosity drives everything we do at Emanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emanuelanglicannyc.com give.